open it to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. As you're finding your way to the book of 1 Peter, I would just remind you that Peter was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called. It was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. We see them with Jesus often in, uh, in settings where other disciples were not. We also know about Peter that while he was bold in the faith, he often spoke without thinking and made declarations that he could not keep. And he had a few major failures in his life and in his Christian journey. And before his last failure, Jesus said these words to him, When you are converted, strengthen the brethren. And so anytime I come to the letters of First and Second Peter, I'm reminded that Peter is fulfilling the ministry that Jesus gave to him. He is strengthening the brethren. And so Peter is writing uh, to Jews, uh, Christian Jews, who have been dispersed uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And we drop in in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, as we are pursuing our study of hope. And he writes, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if, you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is with great desire that we come to your word wanting to learn from you, Lord, wanting to be strengthened in our faith, and Lord, wanting to deepen the mark of hope that is on our life, that it may be even more noticeable to those who are around us. Father, too often we float our hope on things that are not sustainable, and when we do, we are deflated when they fall away. And so, Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to firmly fix our hope in you and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, no matter what comes our way, we have this unshakable hope that stands as a witness and a testimony to others. Father, may you build that up in us today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. According to a recent survey conducted by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at the Penn State's most recent Mood of the Nation poll, Americans are experiencing high levels of worry and much lower levels of hope. Eighty-four percent of Americans say that they are either extremely or very worried compared to the 42% of Americans who describe themselves as extremely or very hopeful. And roughly one quarter of Americans report that nothing makes them hopeful. That is the mood of the nation, according to this survey uh, that is a slice of a broad demographic of people that were surveyed and asked them, what gives them hope? Are they hopeful? 
And uh, this uh, is something that I have observed anecdotally, that it seems like we are living in a day when there is just less hope than there once were. Uh, in the years past, it seems like there were things that were giving people hope, whether it was investments, real estate, economy, the job market, whatever it may be. There were a lot of things that people were looking at, and they had a hopeful outlook because it looked like those things were trending upward. But in recent months and years, the trend has turned on many of those, or they're trending downward, and the people who were placing their hope in those markers are now finding that they are less hopeful. But the reality is that hope has been eroded by sin since the Garden of Eden. God created a perfect world that was full of hope. Hope was everywhere when God created Adam and Eve. And everything was good and everything was functioning right and everything was producing. And there was no sin and there was no death and there was no disease. I'm telling you, God created a world full of hope. But when Adam and Eve opened the door to sin, they opened the door to a flood that began eroding away the hope of mankind. Like Niagara Falls, it is continually being eroded by the water that flows over it. You and I live in a sinful world uh, that has a constant flow of sin that has a way of eroding our hope. Just think about the times and the instances and the things that, that kind of diminish your hope and I'm telling you, you can trace it to some sort of sin, whether it is sickness, whether it is disease, whether it is crime, whether it is hurt, whether it is pain whether it's betrayal it all has its roots in sin and so the statistical data of this survey comes as no surprise to us are you surprised that people are less hopeful I'm not I'll tell you what is a surprise what is not normal is for people's lives to be marked by hope or by hopefulness this survey tells us that most people's lives are marked by worry as opposed to hopefulness. But Peter indicates that the life of a believer is marked by hope. So much so that we are instructed. Did you read this? In 1 Peter 3.15, we are instructed to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason of the hope that is in us. Do you understand that this presupposes that it is normal for a believer's life to be marked by hope? If you've trusted Christ, if there's been a time in your life when you realized that you were a sinner and you prayed and asked Jesus Christ to save you, there were dynamic changes that took place in your life. Some of them were unseen in the fact that God translated you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. He washed away your sins on your eternal record. He justified you. But there are some things, some changes that are manifest in their in your life and when you get saved there are these changes that take place in the way that you think and the way that you speak and the way that you act the way that you behave and one of the dynamic changes that should have taken place in the life of every believer is that there should have been this mark of hope that we have 
Now, it, it doesn't mean that we become automatically the most optimistic people that you've ever seen. Optimism is not the same as hope. Um, some optimism is based in ignorance, is it not? And sometimes people use the word, I hope, and they are hoping for a situation that is not even close to reality. But when the Bible speaks about hope, it is not talking about fantasy. It is not talking about idealism. It is not talking about wishful thinking. It is talking about a confident expectation in a future good. And when I believe in God and I know his revealed plan for the future, I know this, it is good for believers. And so I have hope. We have hope. It is something that takes place in our lives. Now, I know our tendency with this verse and other verses like it, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. It, it is for us to discount it as unrealistic or idealistic. Well, sure, in an ideal situation, everything works out for good. Well, sure, in an ideal situation, all believers have hope that is marked, that is noticeable. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just unrealistic to think that we can actually maintain a high profile of hope in this fallen world. But can I tell you, it is not unrealistic. It is not idealistic. It is reality. It is actual. The context of this verse displays a realistic grasp on the difficulties of a believer. Right When we read the context of this and he says that we have hope that is noticeable... It would be one thing if in the context there was this lack of a grasp on reality. But when you read the surrounding verses, you'll notice that the writer had this firm grasp on reality and the difficulties that come with it. For example, evil is mentioned eight times in this text. Trace it with me if you would. Verse 9, not rendering evil for evil. Evil. There we find the word evil used twice. Verse 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Verse 11, let him eschew or run from evil. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Verse 16, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed. And then verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Yes, I'm telling you that Peter has a realistic grip on, on reality and he understands that we live in an evil world. You say, well, evil is a strong word. I know it's a strong word. And in our ever-changing language, we're at a place in America today where we don't want to call anything evil. Have you noticed that? We used to say that certain leaders were evil because they were committing mass genocide. Now, you will rarely ever hear an American leader say that another leader is evil no matter how bad they are I'm not sure that they would call Hitler evil today and yet evil 
simply means the opposite of godly, the absence of righteousness. And so there is evil in the world. Let me tell you, murder is evil. Child abuse is evil. Neglect is evil. Abuse is evil. Discrimination is evil. Evil shows up everywhere. And Peter is well aware of that as he writes, we are living in an evil world. There are evildoers. God's face is against them that do evil. You will be accused of doing evil. And so he's not painting this, this idyllic picture, this unrealistic situation in which you can maintain hope. He is telling us that we can maintain hope in an evil world. Furthermore, Peter is aware that the people to whom he is writing this letter are suffering He doesn't simply imagine that the people he's writing to are all living their best life. There is no trace of a prosperity gospel doctrine in this book. What he knows is that the gospel came because of our sinfulness. And that the people to whom the gospel comes and they receive it, it does not eliminate or mitigate their suffering. And in some situations, it increases it because they have chosen to go against the current of an evil world by following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he acknowledges that he is writing to people who are suffering and that they are being persecuted for their faith and they are being falsely accused. Did you see it? Verse 14. But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake. In verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you. And so this verse 15 is sandwiched in between these two where he is saying, yes, we live in this this world that is pervaded by evil. And yes, I know that you are suffering, that you are persecuted for your faith and that you are being falsely accused of things that you are not doing. And yet he assumes that their hope will continue to shine so brightly through it all that people will actually ask them why and how they have hope. Isn't that astounding? I mean, in the midst of this text where there's evil all around them and they are suffering and being falsely accused, he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to any man that asks you the hope that resides in you. And so he's presupposing that in spite of all of this, their hope is going to still shine bright in a dark world. So much so that it's going to attract the attention of others who do not have it. And they may ask why. This is deeply convicting to me. How about you? Because I know that my hope seems to be easily eclipsed when I face difficulties. Oh, it's not that I don't have hope. It's not that my hope is completely discarded. It's kind of like an eclipse of the sun. There's just some object that passes in between me and my hope, and it eclipses it so that it doesn't shine so brightly to those that are around me. 
And yet here are people who are obviously going through things more difficult than I am going through. And Peter presupposes, he assumes that their bright hope continues to shine unobstructed. The question is, how do I maintain this kind of hope when everything isn't what I hoped it would be? Isn't that a good question? The answer is found in 1 Peter 3.15. But before we get to that, let's go back and remind ourselves of the nature of this hope that we have as believers. Because I, I want us to, to, to just all be on the same page. That When I'm talking about hope, I am not talking about just an optimistic outlook. I'm not talking about uh, you know, not becoming flabbergasted by the things that happen. There is a unique nature to the hope that is described in the Bible. The Apostle Peter is writing this letter to Jewish Christians who have been displaced by persecution. Our modern term for them would be refugees. Kind of like the recent Ukrainian refugees. That because of the Russian invasion, they are displaced, they flee to other countries, and they're taking what they can carry with them. So, look, there's no U-Hauls, there's no Pinsky trucks, there's, there's nothing like that in this day and time. These people to whom he are writing have had to leave towns with the stuff that they could carry in their bags and on their backs. They are refugees. As Peter writes this letter to Christian refugees, he begins by reminding them of where their hope is found. Look back with me, if you would, at 1 Peter 1, 1 through 6. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, the refugees scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, here it is, hath begotten us, born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations." The hope of a Christian is found in Christ. That's where our hope is found. My hope is not in this world. My hope is not in my retirement. My hope is not in my asset portfolio. My hope is not in my health. My hope is not in my potential. My hope is not in my children. My hope is not in my wife. My hope is not in my parents. My hope is not in my degree. My hope is in Christ what is the substance of that hope? What is the foundation of the hope? Well, according to Peter, the foundation of the hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that he did die on that cross for our sins, confirmed dead, spent three days in the grave, and rose again on the third day, walking out of that grave, proving that he had defeated death, hell, and the grave, and offers to you and I eternal life as a free gift. 
Oh, I don't know what could give you more hope than that. But that's not the only thing that gives hope, according to that passage. We were begotten again to a lively hope by the resurrection to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. And so we have hope in the resurrection of Christ. We have hope in the salvation of Christ. We have hope in the return of Christ that though we have to continue to sojourn in this sinful world and there is heaviness at times, the fact is that this gives us hope, which means that our hope is untouchable by earthly events not only is our hope unshakable it's unstoppable there's a difference there so it's unshakable in the sense that I mean it is founded in the God of the universe it is it is it is set upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ the greatest event that has ever happened on planet earth I mean there is nothing that can shake me off of that hope the only way you could do that is if you could go back and keep Jesus from being resurrected and that's impossible and so it is unshakable but listen it's not just unshakable it's unstoppable Because he described that hope not just as hope, but do you remember the adjective? Lively hope. He's begotten us again to a lively hope. Maybe your Bible says living hope, depending on the translation. I told you last week that that it, it means not just alive, not just living, but it actually means active and energetic It is life that moves around. It is animated life. It is moving life. It is advancing life. It is life that does not sit dormant in your heart. It is hope that is continually and persistently moving and advancing. That is such good news because this hope is not something that I have to prop up. It stands... On its own power. More than that, it actively and energetically moves when I unleash it. Think about the imagery of that. It is an active and energetic life. I don't know about you, but we got a dog. I've got mixed feelings. I like the idea of a dog. I really do. Man's best friend, happy to see you. Fetch Fido, you know, that sort of thing. But the reality of dogs, they, I just, it just, it's not the same. Anyway, our dog loves to run. And our dog loves to run with the car. And so perhaps you have been here on occasion and you've seen Melissa drive through the church parking lot and there is a white streak that is preceding or following her. And uh, that, that's, that's Duncan. That's how he likes to run his energy out. And so if we don't want him to do that, we've got to put him on the tie-out. And man alive, he is, he is pulling on the, if you're driving, he is pulling on the tie-out. All you've got to do to that old boy is unleash him, and he is gone. Can I tell you, that's what the hope we have in Christ is like. It's not a hope that we have to drag along. It's not a hope that we have to carry along. It's not a hope that we got to try to keep propping up with all of these experiences. It is a hope that all we have to do is unleash it. And it will take off. It will move. It will advance. 
And so we come back to the question, how do I unleash this hope in my life? I think all of us want that. There's not a person in the world say like, I don't want that. Sounds like too much work. Sounds like too, too exhausting to be that hopeful, to actually have hope that walks on its own two feet. No, we all want to know, how do I turn that loose in my life? How do I actually see that manifest in my life? And the threefold answer is in 1 Peter 3.15. First of all, number one, worship. Worship. Read the words. 1 Peter 3.15. He says to them, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify means to acknowledge. To acknowledge to be holy or hallowed in your thoughts and in your feelings. And so when he tells them, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, what he's saying is you need to acknowledge the holiness of God in your thoughts and in your feelings. That's what the word heart in the Bible expresses. It is not just feeling. It is also used interchangeable for thoughts. And so it is the combination. And you and I experience that when we experience love. It is with the head. It is with the heart. It is both feelings and thoughts. He says, you and I need to begin as worshipers of the Lord God. We need to worship him in our hearts and minds in our thoughts and in our feelings the worship that is being described here I think is described at least three times by the psalmist when he writes worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness you see it is not a casual relationship with the Lord that will fill your heart with hope like, if, you, if the substance of your faith is, yeah, I prayed a prayer one time and got saved, and, and that's the entire substance of your faith. Let me tell you, a casual relationship with the Lord is not going to fill your heart with hope. It is the result of an intentional, intimate, and intense relationship of worship. Yes, the relationship begins when we pray and ask Jesus Christ to save us. But that can't be where the relationship ends. From there, it has to be intentional. I'm going to pursue a closer relationship with God. Just like I pursued a relationship with my wife or with my, uh, my husband, it was something that didn't just get initiated. It was something that I pursued intently. And then... It also has to be intimate. This is my relationship with the Lord. And while God is able to have a relationship with all of his children, you and I need to have this intimate relationship with the Lord where we get alone with him. I love worship services, and I believe in corporate worship. It is part of the structure of our discipleship. But this is not the only place in which we're supposed to worship the Lord. You and I are supposed to be worshiping Him in the privacy of our hearts. We're supposed to be entering into the prayer closet of our home and getting alone with God and being overwhelmed by the thought of Him and having these encounters of worship with Him. Worship is not a song or a service. Worship is an encounter with God. Now we sing worship songs and we can express worship in a song. And we have worship services like this where the whole, whole aim is to bring us into worship. But make no mistake about it, just because you attend a service doesn't mean you worship. Just because you listened or sang a song doesn't mean you worship. Worship is an encounter with God where you came into His presence 
Everything else begins to fade away. And it is Him and His greatness and His holiness that consumes your thought. When you spend time with God in worship, it will leave its mark on you. Uh, This week I changed a clutch in a project car that I have. I've never done this before. And so I did what I do when I'm taking on something I've never done before. I try to educate myself. And so I talk to people about it. Hey, have you ever changed a clutch before? And probably half a dozen people in this room I've asked that in the last couple of weeks. And some of them have. Well, tell me, walk me through it. Tell me what I need to do. And then I read some articles about it. I get online. I look up the type of uh, engine that I'm changing the clutch in. I read some articles about it. And then I look for some videos on it. And in one of the instructional videos that I, I was watching this week, the, the, the instructor said something that, that just grasped my attention. He was talking about the throwout bearing. And so I don't know enough about the clutch to explain it to you, even though I changed it out this week and it seems to be working. Well, I'll just give you the basics. There's a clutch fork that has a bearing, this round bearing in it. And when you push your clutch pedal, it pushes that fork and it pushes the bearing into the, into the pressure plate, which engages the clutch. And so that bearing sets inside of this fork and there are retention springs on the back side of that thing. And when the instructor was talking about that, he says, you can tell if it's installed properly because there will be witness marks on the bearing. And what he was saying was, because that bearing comes in close proximity with the spring, it rubs it and it leaves a mark that witnesses to that. And I thought, what an amazing description of what worship does to you and I. When we come into that close encounter with God, it's going to leave witness marks on us. It's going to leave some sort of mark that we've been in contact with God. And according to this text, one of those marks is hope. And so it begins with worship. You say, I, I want to have this mark of hope on my life. I want it to be so that other people notice it. Well, it begins with your worship of God. If your worship is non-existent, if your worship is flat, if your worship is intermittent, let me tell you something, your, your hope is going to suffer. But if you learn how to be a worshiper of God, not, not just coming to church on Sundays, but I'm talking about in your daily life, there's, there's, there's portions of time that you give to God alone and you come into His presence and you worship Him. It's going to mark your life. It's going to mark your life with hope. Number two, wrestle, wrestle. This comes from the next statement in the verse. Be, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer. Be ready means to be prepared. Be prepared. And so his instruction is begin by sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. Spend some time with God. And then you need to prepare yourself to be ready to give an answer. Uh, to prepare to give, the, the Greek word is, is apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. It is, a, it is a reasoned explanation of why you have the hope. You know this requires you to wrestle with the idea of hope. That's why I say wrestle. I want to give you an image 
that sticks with you in your mind. You say, how do I, how do I have this mark of hope in my life that's noticed by other people? Well, it begins with worship, but then you need to wrestle with the idea of hope. We need to try to wrap our arms around it. We need to try and grasp it with our minds. Uh, we, need to, we need to try and uh, figure out and ask the tough questions. Uh, what is hope? What is this thing that I, I am wanting in my life? Where do I find hope? Where do others find hope? Why do I have hope in God? What is it that makes me hope in a God that I cannot see, feel, or touch? What about people who feel hopeless? What do I say to them? Why do they feel hopeless? What is the cause of this hopelessness in their life? How do I answer questions about hope? You know, I, I, I have a bit of a frustration. And I'm hesitant to express it because I don't want you to feel bad. But I really feel like we want a shallow Christianity. We want a Christianity that fits neatly into our pocket. We want something that, that we can have a few talking points about, and then we don't want to think any more about it. My friends, let me tell you something. Why God made it so simple that a child can understand and believe, you cannot plumb the depths of God. And the greatest pursuit that you can have in your life is pursuing a knowledge of God. You're never going to figure him out. If you could figure him out, he wouldn't be God. But the joy of being his child is that I get to learn more about him. And sometimes people say, I don't know what we're going to do in heaven. Is it going to be like one long church service? I'll be the first one to say, I hope not. Like I enjoy church, but I don't want that to last forever. What do I think one of the greatest joys of heaven is going to be? Well, God's going to restore creation to where it was supposed to be with all the elements that it had, right? He created the earth in perfection. He gave us the outdoors. He gave us these interests. He gave us these. So there's going to be that. But you know what I think one of the most stimulating, exciting parts of heaven is going to be is that we're actually going to get to learn more about God. Like the mystery of God. We're going to get to... See more what, about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, about the eternal plan of God. Did God, God conceived of this plan before he ever created mankind? He knew that we were going to rebel against him, that it was going to cost him, and the depth of his love was so great that he says, I'll go ahead and create them and give them a free will, knowing that I am going to have to sacrifice my son to say, I'm telling you, there is so much that we can learn about God. And when we begin to wrestle with that, it builds our hope. The Apostle Paul mentored Timothy on how to always be able to give an answer. And he said this, and I'll share you, with you these two objectives to wrestling with hope. One is 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You say, if I'm going to wrestle with the idea of hope, if I'm going to increase my hope, the mark of hope on my life, what do I need to do? You need to get in the book. You've got to get in the book because this is where God has revealed himself. This is the eternal word of God. And we have to wrestle with the concepts that we find in this book. Let me tell you something. Uh, there are some parts of it that are very simple. You can read them once and be like, I got that. And there's other parts of it that you're going to have to read and say, I think there's something more to that. I'm going to have to read that again. You know what? I think I read something about that in this other book of the Bible. I'm going to read it. 
Now I'm going to have to go back and forth between these books. And you're going to find yourself wrestling with these ideas and wrapping your arms around it. But beyond that, then we need to spend some time thinking deeply and critically about hope. Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that your profiting may appear to all. And so if you want to wrestle with the concept of hope so that it leaves its mark on you, first you need to read some scriptures and then you need to give some headspace to it. You need to take your device, shut it off, lay it aside, and you need to meditate on the things of God. So how long do I have to do that? Well, I'm not giving you a prescribed time. I'm just saying that you and I shouldn't always try to be multitasking in our time with God. You can pray and drive. You can pray and shower. You can drive and listen to the uh, Bible on audio. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be the only time you spend with God when you're doing that and something else. You and I ought to spend some time that we carve out where we read the Word and we give ourselves a little bit of room just to think about it. What we read, what God said, what gives us hope. What gives me hope? Well, I'll tell you what gives me hope. What gives me hope is that Adam and Eve blew it. I mean, they blew it. They really blew it. God created the world perfect. He gave them one rule, and it wasn't even that hard. Don't eat of this tree. All the other trees you can eat of. Just don't eat of this tree. And the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. It's bad for you. It's a big warning label. There's skull and crossbones on it. Don't eat of this tree. What do they do? I think I know better than the God that created all this stuff. I'm going to go eat of that tree. And then God. Do you know what God does? He forgives them. He covers them. He restores them. He develops a plan of salvation for them. He gives them a second chance. He keeps loving them. That gives me hope. How many times is that repeated? I mean, it seems like everybody in the Bible did that. The, every one of them blew it. Every one of them messed up somehow. Every one of them was not perfect when God gave them every opportunity. And what do we see God doing? Offering them forgiveness, restoration, salvation, second chance. He loves them. I'm telling you, I think about those things and it gives me hope because I blow it and you blow it. And if God hadn't revealed himself that way in Scripture, and I hadn't thought about that, then I would have nothing to hope for. And then the third and final is witness. Sanctify the Lord your God in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer to any man that asks you. The final step is witness. It means to, to, to give an answer means to put it into words and explain it. You see, there's a whole lot of us Christians that have thought about stuff. And maybe we even sit and listen to the preacher preach or the teacher preach. I'm like, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I've got that. It's kind of boring. I've heard this before. But we'd be hard-pressed to explain it to somebody else. You see, nothing solidifies what you believe like having to explain it to somebody else. It, it, it really is the master class of discipleship. 
You say, I want to grow in my walk with the Lord. I, 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 I want to take steps of faith. I want to grow in my knowledge with him. Well, you've got to put in the work to study. But if you really want to take the master's class and you want to hit a next level of discipleship, start telling people about it. Start explaining it to somebody. Because they're going to think of questions that you never thought of before. Even the littlest ones. Isn't that right? You try to teach something to a kid. Man, they'll ask you the most profound question you ever heard in your life. And you say, well, let me get back to that, you know. Or, hey, here's a sucker, good question. And then you go home and study it. The fact is, what he wanted these people to do was not just have hope, not just understand the hope, but he wanted them to explain the hope to others. Hebrews 5.12 says, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the first principles of the Word of God. That is the natural progression for the believer. We ought to be able to learn it and then to explain it. As I look back over my life, I have to admit that I struggled with hopelessness when I was a teenager and a young adult. Before I got saved, my life uh, had a lot of hurts and disappointments and failures in it. And I really did get to a place where I thought, you know, what's the purpose in all of this? Life is no good. It's good for some people, but it's not good for Justin Hall. And then I got saved. And I got saved and I found the hope that I'd been looking for but could never find. I mean... There was something that literally changed in my thinking when I came into a relationship with God. And now all of a sudden I, I was loved. I did have a purpose. There was a plan for my life. There was something to look forward to. It wasn't all meaningless and hopeless. And so I know what it is to feel the darkness of despair. And I know what it is to feel the joy of hope. And I think it would be so very cruel of me not to tell other people where I found the hope. Because what I know is that on this planet of nearly 8 billion people, there's less hope. There's less hope than ever before. And the mark of hope on our lives, the mark of hope that should be on our lives, gives us a lot of opportunities to witness to others. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads for just a moment. And we allow the words of God to echo in our minds. I'm quite certain that there are many here today who would like to see an increase of hope in their life would like to have their life so marked by hope that it is actually noticeable to other people. I know that's how I feel. God's given us the key. He's given us the instructions. He's told us that it begins with worship. That as we prioritize our time with God, we go deeper with Him. We spend time with Him. It leaves its mark on our life. It makes us more hopeful. And then as we prepare ourselves to tell others about that, we plunge the depths of what it means to have hope and why we have hope and where we find this hope.
And then when we do put it into words, oh, there is some transformative power that takes place, not just in the life of the person who hears it, but in the life of the person who tells it. Every time we tell the story, it gives us more hope. Well, friend, I want you to have the most hopeful year you've ever had in your life. And I believe that if we simply take and apply these simple scriptural principles, we can see that become a reality. Oh, Lord, I do pray for those who may hear this message who do not have the hope of Christ. Maybe they've heard the story, but they've never believed it. Father, I pray that they would come to faith in Christ, that they would see that the resurrection of Christ truly is our only hope for our sinfulness, and that when we trust Him, we are not simply believing in some sort of fairy tale, but that we are actually engaging in an eternal transaction that washes away our sins and writes over top of our lives the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are saved, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be worshipers, that we would not just think of our salvation as some sort of eternal fire insurance that gives us peace at night, knowing that we won't go to hell when we die, but that we would see it as the opportunity and invitation into a close relationship with you, Lord and that we would make that the pursuit of our daily lives, and that all the material pursuits in our lives would be seen for what they are, things that will be eaten away by moth and rust and destroyed with time, and that our relationship with you is eternal. And then, Father, I pray that we would be vocal, that we would tell others about it, that we would put it into words, that we wouldn't just contain it in our hearts and in our minds, but that we would actually share it with others who are looking for hope. Oh God, I pray and ask that you would accomplish this in our lives through the lively hope that is in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand